0: Hello and welcome to another video on this channel. Today we are joined by Jufu Chang Warren to talk about the value of fiction. Hope you're having a good day so far and of course if you enjoy this content then make sure to put any comments, questions and ideas in the live chat. That is where you can indeed reach out to us. So without further ado let's get right into this discussion and talk about fiction. Jufu Chang how are you and what is fiction?
1: Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. So, me and Josh thought we could start with talking about maybe how one can differentiate between fiction and non-fiction, or or whether it is differ differentiable. And well, my proposal kind of is that it is actually very difficult for one to differentiate between fiction and non-fiction because the very writing down of certain things, the very uh, putting putting of actual events into narration, are already select selects out uh, events that is to be narrated and other events. So in this sense, I think nonfiction is is also fiction, but perhaps just being, being, it's more on a spectrum and every single nonfiction already has something about fiction. If it doesn't have any fictional element, it will be uninteresting. We we would just live out our everyday lives rather than going, going to read the book. And I guess what I'm proposing here is something like, well, we actually get more out of nonfiction if we start reading nonfiction using a fictional way.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that what is very interesting here is is the question of well, what on earth does fiction and nonfiction mean? Because of course when you're growing up a, a, as a child, the common question is, well, what is fiction? What is a nonfiction? You ask the teacher and then fiction people say, Well, fiction is fiction is what is true non-true or nonfiction is what is true or historical. But then the question naturally rises that, is that distinction valued or is that distinction actually correct? Because it does appear to me that a lot of fiction is fundamentally true and true in a very abstract sense, of course. But I do think it's true in the same way. And in the same way, you turn and say, what well, is nonfiction? In some sense, you could say, well, perhaps fiction is the... At least good fiction, because of course we all know theres few stupid writers who just write trash, and then that is fiction in the dumbest way possible, right like John <laughs> yes, indeed, go check out Christianity for all, but no, I, I do think that there are certain books where you think, okay, that doesn't really seem to be true, but you then look at nonfiction right and you look at it and say, well, let's look at fiction, and in some sense, the best fiction is that which almost combines non-fiction in a certain sense and says well this is the set of non-fiction let us wrestle with that set of non-fiction and then when you have that under control then you can move forward and say well yes the best fiction of Dostoevsky, of of um of romance of the three kingdoms sam is kind of like saying well they take upon aspects of truth what is most true in what they experience in the world the non-fiction and then accumulate that into a certain set of books. And in some sense, fiction at its peak is accumulation of what is most true about society, or the archetypes which are most true in society.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree, but, but then I think there's also another thing, right? So you can why why can't we just directly describe those archetypes? rather than uh, going into fiction. You see, maybe we can have the fiction and a non-fiction sort of journalistic kind of thing. But there's, there's also another kind of non-fiction. Let's say like philosophical theory or more academic kinds of books. And I, I, I guess the, the question is, why, why do we, what is the value that we get in fiction, beyond the mere sort of academic theorizing about the fiction? Or let's say, why do we, why do we want to actually read uh, The Brothers Karamazov, or one piece rather than just reading the summary on Smart Notes of those two books. That's, I think, the interesting question.
0: Uh, is this distinction something kind of like the myth of Sisyphus contra the Stranger, kind of like the the fiction yeah, that yeah, the yeah. philosophy
1: under? Or I versus nausea.
0: Yeah, I do think that one of those things where you'll look at it, and it's one of those things where you'll perhaps say, well, maybe. The, the beauty of fiction is that it is multi-realizable or you could interpret it in many different ways in in, in the same way that if you look at non-fiction it is way more limited because it the way that academics write is it's almost it has to be in some sense univocal and it has to be clear rather in fiction there are multiple ways to interpret a certain topic and even though it might differ from what the author originally intended you could still, nevertheless, find truth within it those things in which you interpret, precisely because they represent the culture and the structure in which you're living in. And now I sound like a postmodernist, but in some degrees, I think that is precisely this multiple interpretation of a work, of a fiction work, which makes it valuable.
1: Yeah, and I think it does sound a bit like this postmodernist. Um, we can interpret. Uh, fiction is endlessly interpretable and I would agree that it is the strength of fiction. Perhaps what we can say is rather than it being that fiction other than you can just play around with fiction and other than the writer's intention you have to be fidel to that, we can say that maybe, uh, that's my idea, is that fiction somehow tries to represent the world as it is directly given to the author and in this sense the author does not do any interpretation onto the world. And that is why it is endlessly interpretable by other people. Because there is, in, in really good fiction, there is, there is exactly a lack of authorial presence inside, but rather the author directly giving giving his or her own world to you, allowing you to step
0: into their world. I think that that's definitely true. And I think that one of the questions which you would then ask is well, what actually is the relationship between the author's world in which we step into and the world in which we live in? And that would na- naturally be the question, because the clash of culture, the clash of ideas will naturally lead to this kind of multiple interpretations arising. And I suppose a natural question leading on from that as well, is there actually anything true, correct or incorrect when it comes to these interpretations? Is there, is there potentially a certain kind of problem or is there potentially a certain kind of issue in reading or viewing these certain ideas?
1: Well, I, I would say the interpretation of fiction is inherently political. Political not in the sense of like left and right clashing, but political in sort of this Arantian sense of each person trying to speak in uh, their individuality in order to speak out their quote-unquote own truth. The, I guess the idea is that when we're interpreting fiction, what we're trying to do is to, uh, is to get out our own opinion in a really true way, just as when Socrates questions people, what Socrates is trying to do is not necessarily getting directly to the truth, but he is improving your opinion by constantly destroying it and rebuilding it. And I, I think that might be one of the usefulness of fiction. So when we're interpreting it, what we're also doing is interpreting ourselves. And in such a way, when we're when we're moving outside into fiction, into another world, what we're really encountering is is our is a self within which we are constantly shaping and reshaping and and trying to make make true.
0: I suppose then the natural question would be like the, the role of allegory in fiction, because and in some sense there's almost the allegory within the allegory, for example. You look at the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov it's almost the idea that the, the, the Grand Inquisitor is the allegory within the allegory in the same way that the, the before the law is the allegory within the allegory of Kafka's the trial right so I do think that there's a idea of there is fiction in a stricter sense and then there is fiction of the fiction which is found as fiction within the fiction and in some sense those are summaries or or parts of the fiction which are more intense or perhaps more profound or insightful than what we see before.
1: Okay, so somehow there's, it seems to us that allegory is sort of fiction attracted out onto another level, right? And such a way, allegories are normally the most memorable parts of every single fictional book. And I think I I agree with you that the central allegory is sort of this not necessarily the key that opens up the entire book, but the node from which everything else makes sense. That's that's why I think, and, and that's why I think allegory is so endlessly interpretable. That's why like every single philosopher has their reading on Plato's uh, allegory of the cave, precisely because that one allegory contains the entire life of the philosopher or the writer. And therefore the, the one allegory, I think going back to the previous theory of fiction uh, provide Indu- inducing the reader into a world. The allegory is like this this key or this invitation for one to enter a world. And then everything else is everything else around the book is, is kind of this mm, it's making concrete of the allegory. So moving from the most abstract allegory down into the most concrete in order for the world to be really livable for you. And I think that might be also why we shouldn't just read the summary but rather going to the book because in order for you to actually interpret the world, uh, in, interpret yourself and interpret the work, you have to enter the world and really live it. And in order for that world to be livable, you have to have to move from the abstract to the concrete in order for the world to build out. And if you only remain in the abstract, which is what happens if you only have the, have the abstract right, or have the summary of the whole thing. Then, then it becomes fiction becomes useless in some sense.
0: I think that that's definitely interesting, and I think that if you take it to a more, I think, I think one of the ways you can also look at it is in some ways that the 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 allegory within the allegory is the representation of the It's almost the rawest, most abstract form of the fiction. If the fiction didn't get real enough, and mm-hmm. perhaps. Perhaps a good example of this would be Before the Law by Kafka, where where almost the entire situation of the story can be summarized into the trial. But at the same time, it seems very difficult to interpret the trial or the Before the Law without the without the subject around. And in some sense, you know how there's abstracts before philosophical essays. Perhaps allegory plays a similar way as that abstract. Though yeah. so it's, it's impossible to understand or at least fully understand the abstract without the essay mm-hmm. behind it.
1: Yeah, so that's why, like, why don't we just read the abstract in front of every single, uh, uh, every single essay, rather than reading the whole essay? It's somehow, after, after you first get the abstract, and then you go through the whole thing, and when you come back to the abstract again, the abstract becomes a, a thinkable abstract. And I want to maybe claim the same thing for fiction, as in, maybe you can have a skeletal plot, right? Or, or the uh, central allegory. But only when you go through the whole argument, or the, the whole book, the whole world can the can the can a skeleton the skeleton of the plot make make sense and be livable to
0: you? Well, I think that it is one of those things where you look at. I think perhaps the best way to look at it is the Christian story, right? It's it's kind of like you look through the lens of Christianity and you see all these different modes of being, and in some sense, the fundamental question in Christianity as well. How on earth are we meant to live in the world without a savior? And that could perhaps be Christianity summarized. And in some ways, you could summarize trial well, into that as well, the sense of you being before a crime, which you kind of do not understand what you committed. So I do think in some ways you intuitively know what you committed in some sense. And perhaps you could say that the totality, the totality of the sins that Kay committed is at the same time known and unknown to him. For example, we all know intuitively, at least that we all are fallen beings, whether you're Christian or not, right? There are problems within us, but at the same time, we do not recognize that fallen nature as crime. For example, it's kind of like how the person who hates himself for watching pornography all the time knows that he's a horrible person, or the or the person who does drugs knows that he's a horrible person. But yet when, when he is asked, are you a horrible person? Do you deserve to go to jail or do you deserve to receive punishment? They say no. And in the same sense, it's kind of that relationship of denying the fact that you know you know what you've committed. But at the same time, you know that you've committed something wrong, which puts a predicament of humanity at kind of what punishment is. And, I'm, and this is kind of my interpretation of the trial now. And even though you could say it's overly Christian-fied, I do think it is perhaps one of the correct ways to look at it. In the same way, when in before the law, he goes and looks at kind of goes to the gatekeeper. It's kind of the idea, that revelation of, well, yeah, I'm here my entire life. But in some sense, that is exactly where you are. And there's this beautiful Christian verse, which I which I was watching a sermon in the morning today. and, And this is what the pastor said. Of course, he didn't refer to the trial. But he said, whoever believes in him referring to Christ is not condemned. But whoever who does not believe stands condemned already idea that you are judged before you even enter not necessarily before you even entered it, but before your death, you are already judged. But it's rather at that point of the death, it's that point where the door opens, where you realize you're truly messed up and you're truly screwed now. If you don't have that resurrection, you don't have that salvation. I think that that could be a way in which you look at all literature to some degree, to greater or lesser extent. It's like, well, we are all living in this world with that challenge, and you have to move beyond it, perhaps, to some degree. Mm
1: -hmm. Or can can you even say, uh, following... Our uh, door door metaphor, that uh, the reading of fiction, this entering into another world, is exactly this opening of the door that is perpetually closed. Or when whenever you're you're going really living out a single book, you're going through this Christian narrative. Which, uh, Jordan Peterson claims that sort of uh, there's a story and then there's meta-story, right? And for him, for him, one of these like one of the best meta stories, the story of how stories transform themselves is the Christian narrative. So in some sense, whenever you're reading a piece of fiction, what you're doing is living out <laughs> living out Christ.
0: <laughs> Indeed, I do think that there is that element there to some degree. And perhaps even in a more abstract sense, there is this idea that, well, there are fundamental archetypes. And that's why it goes to the question of kind of like, can we differentiate nonfiction from fiction? It's kind of the idea that, well, you're looking at these meta stories, and in some ways it is these fundamental archetypes which repeat themselves over and over again throughout history and a good example would be like the oedipus complex right it is it occurs in greece and it occurs in russia as well and i'm currently still doing
1: actual- it-
0: <laughs> no, but- <laughs> or it doesn't it sound more like the war and jew situation because <laughs> it's supposed that war and jew has to leave in like 20 minutes to have the last supper though though I suppose the last supper could be a representation of a lot of different things, I suppose, especially if you are a Freudian in some degree, but I suppose the natural question is, it's kind of like, there are these stories, there are these archetypes which repeat themselves constantly, and in, in some sense, that is the meta-story, or the meta-truth that you're mm-hmm. trying to interact with in a Petersonian way, at least, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and and well, there's a quite famous quote from David Foster Wallace, as you know, my favourite author, and someone's, someone, like, in an interview, asked him, I well do you, well, what do you think about realist fiction because people does not think that his novels are realistic and he says is well every single person every single writer wants to be a realist with a capital r it's just that sort of this uh, lowercase r realism of uh, being being truth truthful to every single detail in the world does not really get you to this capital r real which every single writer, no matter in what style or what school they want to get to, is trying to represent.
0: I think that's definitely true. And I think if you look at Lord of the Rings or something like that, you could say, well, like someone would naturally say that that is completely out there. But I don't think it is completely out there either. Like a lot of those values and stories can be applied to us today in the world. And it's kind of the idea of, well, is... And that's I think that's one, also one of those ideas where kind of like the post-Enlightenment rational thoughts have kind of ruined ruin the the enterprise of literature perhaps and you could say well Leitnich was the last universal genius and one of those reasons is because it kind of is a balance of that and Voltaire's critique of Leitnich was also quite interesting in Candida but then that also kind of shows that you don't need to be realist to understand how true things certainly are at least in the lowercase if you look at Candida it's like the most it's the most bloody mentally out there book ever but at the same time feels really real like I mean some of the stuff you see in Candida is like, it was Voltaire on drugs when he wrote that, but at the same time, it is a very real book, and it's one of the books of the West. perhaps to some degree. Right, so mm-hmm. I think I think it kind of ties in also to uh, Benji's question of Do you think it's important for readers to learn to identify Jungian archetypes in in fictional stories? Do you think Do you think that that's something which is a valuable thing to do?
1: I think by by learning some Jungian theory. It, it helps you in reading fiction. But at the same time, there's so much nuance in every single book, and that is why you should read the book rather than having the archetype. I think one one needs to be careful of fitting one's preconceived archetypes onto the story, but rather allow the archetype itself to develop and, and become more full in its interaction with the
0: story. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps the natural question as well lies here is that and it's kind of this idea, I was talking with someone, it's kind of like your preconceived conception of someone else often defines how you interpret their actions, even if you don't really know what their actions actually are. And and in some ways, I think that there is that important nature there as well. And in some ways, I think the more you read about Jungian archetypes, the more it defeats the purpose in the idea of archetypes themselves, in the sense that you should at least know the concepts of archetypes in the most simple way. But the moment you start delving too deep into them, it defeats that creative process of interacting with work yes. i think that that is one of those things with union archetypes perhaps I mean, it's more having
1: the archetype in mind and then constantly breaking the archetype and rebuilding it So well this this links with something i want to move on to right so uh, what recently i've been reading a lot of fiction so after after getting accepted to college etc and i i sort of found two different two f- different things that fiction gives me right one thing is that it it helps me think of the most abstract things so in philosophy there's sort of two different kinds right? there's like this uh basis of intuition it's like i know i know love is the greatest value or i know freedom is the greatest value and there's another kind of uh i need to i need to prove through reason through argument why freedom is the greatest value and what i think is that uh in reading fiction one it allows one to try to formulate sort of this most higher level abstract thing that is given in intuition or it it somehow hones like hones my intuition in some way i'm not sure how another one is that whenever i read some fiction what the fiction i really love the feeling i get is not necessarily that i got the answer from this book but rather the book the book made everything much more mysterious and ambiguous than when I entered it. It somehow I just don't understand how everything fits together, but it, it just feels so real. It's like um, it's like they you know sometimes those books have like these really small, strange but profound details. Like let's say <laughs> let's say for an example, this character just likes to touch his touch his penis like every <laughs> every hour. He's randomly touches his penis for no reason. <laughs> and then, like, Somehow, somehow the detail seems really profound, but you don't really, you can't really understand why that detail seems <laughs> profound to you. And in this sense, then I think with these overlaying of details, what fiction does is asks you questions rather than providing you answers. And maybe this is linked somehow in uh, in building your intuition for for sort of these the higher level stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. I do think that is true, I think that. You've touched upon something which is very interesting, because if you're looking at your kind of these small details, I do think that at the same time, there is a kind of point where you start to overthink certain things. And I think that sometimes things become way more, I suppose this ties into the next point as well about information density of fiction is that kind of the moment you start trying to psychoanalyze or just analyze every single thing in in fiction, what then occurs as well. You almost, I would say it almost defeats the point of fiction as well. In some sense, when you approach a work of fiction, I think that you kind of are wrestling or torn between the idea of a guardian kind of leap of faith into the fiction at the same time as interacting with it rationally. There's almost this kind of paradoxical line, in which, dialectic line in which you have to walk by accepting the nature, the almost the absurd nature of the fiction while at the same time accepting the rational side of the fiction. Well, I think that sometimes by analyzing too much, it almost defeats the entire point of fiction in the first place. I wonder what your thoughts are. of this yeah, kind of well,
1: this kind I, between the two I, I would kind of disagree with you. I think the the best way, how I found, what I found most rewarding when I'm approaching fiction is when, so that I have to, I have to text, but also I have some personal problem that I'm trying to solve. And what I'm doing, I'm sort of in dialogue with the book, in order to understand my own personal problems, and on this way, I can try to live out uh, the the characters to to really immerse myself in a story, or I can try to rationally analyze the different components of the story in a formalist way. But ultimately, I think what the the books that have in, the, the the novels that really had an impact on me was novels that novels that were pertinent to my own situation in some way. And it, it is in this direct engagement, existential engagement with fiction that I think it really shines compared to, or, or else I don't think there's much point in, in one reading a novel compared to just getting like a quick summary of it. And one cannot uh, go into this existential, this mode of existential engagement. That's sort of what the uh, I think Barth talked about in the Pledge of the Text. I, you're saying there's this pleasure of directly confronting the text and endlessly being in dialogue with it, actively interpreting, reinterpreting and incorporating the text into one's own life compared to passively absorbing the plot line and just going through the story as, as an observer.
0: I suppose that Barthian approach I would agree with to some degree, though. So I do think that kind of I I do think that actively interacting and absorbing the text is almost a passive interaction and it seems contradictory But I do think that when you get your best interaction with the work It's not necessarily when you're forcefully trying to feed yourself a certain view of that work You're not like, oh, it's kind of like my Kafka's a trial and um, Realization in the morning. It wasn't like, oh, I am analyzing strictly I mean, we even made a live stream for an hour talking about Kafka's a trial and that never came up to me at no, And Josh
1: is Josh, here like randomly touching his penis
0: like, <laughs> my <laughs> hands just like moving underneath the table and, like, hmm, there's something sus. But I do think that there's this idea of kind of your, it is precisely that idea of almost a passive acceptance and ponderance of life allows you to retrospectively understand certain texts. And in some sense, it's an active living in the world and that active kind of mode of being when you're interacting with everyday experiences, which oftentimes passively gives you a new insight into a work. And sometimes those insights are, I would say, almost more profound than mm-hmm. than kind of actively say, oh, I have a book in front of me. I must analyze it, if you got know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's more a kind of, uh, it's, so, so when you're reading fiction and immersing yourself into it, uh, in the process of reading, you're, you're in a sort of this highly concentrated state of try, like, of, of everything being parameterized, and you have to, uh, you have all the details getting in. And I, I, guess, what you want to do is to also, also have this um, highly diffuse state after after reading a certain section, and just allowing allowing thoughts about the, the characters, the plot, uh, to to come alive for you for you. And I, I think that that works well in situations where so you have some something that you're doing that is not really demanding. And then you're allowing your brain to sort of wander in this diffused way and uh, also preventing you to concentrate really, really heavily on, on actually thinking about the plot because you actually have something to do. So for me, it's sort of playing an instrument. When I play an instrument I just reflect on uh, the, the books I've read, I, I, get, I think I get a better understanding of the whole thing and also it impacts my life more. And I'm wondering if you have like a similar practice.
0: I do think that's the case. And sometimes it's when I'm playing the cello or or listening to music perhaps, which allows me to give these insights. And I think that kind of, there's this kind of, I would say, reciprocal relationship when it comes to reading fiction. Does reading fiction improve decision-making skills? I do think that that definitely helps. But in some sense, it is by living, you're able to read fiction better. And also by reading fiction, you live better as well. So I do think that there is two ways in which this goes, because I think that, and that's a question with the idiot, right? And it, it allows you to challenge yourself saying, well, is Mushkin good or not? And and I think that in literature there's very rarely something which is more how'd I call it more perplexing than the idiot. It just purely because it's almost impossible to understand whether what he's doing is good or not. Because it does seem intuitively that he's good, but at the same time, he seems so socially inept that you wouldn't necessarily do that as well, if you got what I mean, so there is that kind of distinction there.
1: I feel like I feel like it would improve one's decision making skills, but I wouldn't call it decision making necessarily. I would say I think it would allow one... First, it was, it's the intuition that I was talking about before. So to be able to directly intuit values in the world. And I think that, that's one part of the decision-making component, how it improves it. But another is that... I think it just... Uh, by thinking deeply about something, you, you you get better at thinking deeply about something, right? That's the Aristotelian insight of how like doing something virtuously makes you more virtuous. And in the same way, by... Deeply thinking about the fictional situations, you allow their the, the ability to reflect back onto your own life. And I think that, that also links to another thing about reading fiction. I, I, I feel like reading fiction is supposed to be difficult in, in some ways, and, and rather than being easy. The, and, and, and I think one we normally have this, I guess preconceived notion that reading fiction is easier than uh doing a lot of other things. I'd say being an English major is like at the lowest uh, oh being a complete uh major is like at the lowest of the hierarchy of, of like all the majors. You have the STEM major on top and then maybe the philosophy major and then the other uh, social sciences major and then at the bottom you just have like conflict where like no one no one cares about them. Where
0: do you think gender studies ranks on this um list of hierarchy of majors?
1: Gender studies is around the same as conflict in, in terms ah, of some, the discrimination hierarchy, right? <laughs> and it's supposed to be difficult in some ways if you do it right where you're doing complete, that that you, you you have a certain quality of thinking that is as profound as sort of things at the higher level of of this hierarchy but the, the problem is that one can uh, slide into this complacency when one's reading fiction but like I, I guess my most profound experiences when reading fiction is the experience of well i'm reading the thing but it's there's so much meaning Inside it, that I almost cannot take the whole thing anymore, and I have to stop and reflect on it because I feel like I, I'm I'm losing track of everything. It's it's overwhelming me.
0: Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that is the case. And um, Benji refers to Hegel, who's someone who I don't really know much about, but says, or someone who said that you can only understand after reading it twice. Do you think? Do you think that's true? Because I do think intuitively, I do learn books more after I've read them twice.
1: Mm-hmm. That's in the preface preface of The Phenomenology of Spirits, I think. And, mm. and well, Hegel was directly, I think he, Hegel was first referring to his own prose, which, if you ever read them, I don't think one can understand it. <laughs> Even if one has read it twice, maybe like three or four times, like or five. But I, I think what Hegel is referring to is this, that the specific quality of fiction is that, uh, The the meaning of the events as it is happening is ambiguous until uh, until everything unfolds. So in some sense, um, the meaning of Jesus's death uh, is is ambiguous until the resurrection, right? So in in this sense, then fiction is completely is is almost this organic whole in which none of the parts can be can be interpreted without consideration of everything else. And in this sense i think there's a value first in immersing oneself in the story rather than reading it twice and i think the value perhaps is is in this constant breaking of one's expectation and reinterpreting of the situation because that's that's sort of holding down the decision making skills that we're doing just then but also enabling us to break down archetype and rebuilding it as we were talking about before
0: Though I would disagree with you on the Jesus Christ death kind of thing, because I do think that the death and the resurrection should be separated in the sense that it is written in the Bible that the wages of sin is death and the death was given on the cross. So in some senses, the wages of the sin, like Jesus' mission, was completed, theoretically, to save man from his sin just by his death alone. But rather, what the resurrection tells us is that, well, via the resurrection of Christ, christ is with us it's not just that the sins are done but rather that the sins we have a guidance forward because i was i had this dream i, I told you about the dream as i like ages ago right but i had this dream the other night and not the other night but like a few months ago but then essentially what happened in this dream was well i there was i helped someone solve their problem right but then the person was like well i messed up so badly that i'm definitely going to fall back into the same problem again and i was like all right it doesn't matter i'm going to always be here for you and then that it's that it's that like, kind of like, I solved the problem, and then I'm always going to be here for you, is the separation between the death and then the resurrection. And I think that that is the separation, mm-hmm. in the sense that they're both infinitely definable by their own action, and I mean, it's within themselves, mm-hmm. perhaps.
1: Well, I guess I was referring to sort of the line idea that without the resurrection, everything is lost, right? Indeed. So somehow it, it is the resurrection that retroactively justifies the, the death as the, the meaning that we, we we are giving it right now. And I, I, I'm not saying that the Bible is fiction, but I think one can read it in, in a profoundly fictional way. And it is one of the best pieces of fiction, even if one just uh, puts it in, in its fictional context, right? And, and I guess the idea then is that one can only read a sentence by by reading it twice. I think Hegel, uh, Hegel specifically said a, a philosophical sentence. And for him, a philosophical sentence is a sentence that develops the idea in some way. And for him, idea like a capital I. And for him, this developing of the idea in a philosophical sentence is is a is when the sentence itself breaks down some preconceived notion, breaks down some previous concept that we have whilst building something new, waiting for itself to be broken down again. So it actually in this sense, then when you're reading a really good uh, philosophy text you're, you're you're almost going you're almost going through the same process that you're reading fiction because a, a really good one doesn't really just tell you the the conclusion right it leads you through the entire thought process of how the conclusion was what was, was how, how the author arrived at that conclusion and by making you go through the whole process, you're like, well, I just spent 20 hours in order for Hegel to say that uh, nothing happened right? <laughs> that everything just went, went back into what it was. What one has acquired, I think it's the same thing as what one has acquired in reading fiction is this is this entire world world that the, that the philosophical that the author of the philosophy book is, is living through. And, and the entire thought process.
0: Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is a very good place to end off this discussion. Because Warren Jew, of course, has to go to his Oedipal, um family reunion dinner in, in, a, in a few minutes. But I hope you've all had a good uh, video. If you enjoyed this video, make sure to like and subscribe. It means a lot to me and it really helps this channel grow. Next week, I have actually have my good friend Zach on from Adherent Apologetics who has like four times more subscribers than I do. But... Make sure you go check out that live stream. I'm not sure when actually it is, but it is on the 30th. So have a great day, my friends. See you soon. Thanks for watching. And I'll see you next month. my friends. And bye.